Well, good morning. My name is Micah Harriman. I'm the Associate Pastor of Evangelism and Discipleship. Uh, I'm excited. I think this is going to be a, a, just a, a good series, a good opportunity um, for, for everyday voices to, to come up and share the, the pulpit with Pastor Chris. He sets a high bar, I think, for us all. Um, but it's a great opportunity to, to be able to spend some time to, to share our heart, uh, to unpack Scripture together. I'm, I'm thankful. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's a big difference in training and working out. Right? Has anybody experienced this before? Huge difference, training and working out. So believe it or not, I, I ran track in college at, at a small D2 school. And when I ran track, um, I woke up every day, Monday through Friday, 5.30 a.m. I was at the track by 6. We had practice where we ran sprints and did agility training, and we did uh, strength training from 6 to 8. That's two hours of sprints. That's not like jogging, that's sprints. We immediately left. We went inside. We hit the weight room for about an hour. Uh, then we went to the training facility where we would take these... Uh, there's kind of like an ice pack that you would just kind of grind your shins. Like you would just, just rub the shin splints out of your shins. And then you'd hop in this thing called an ice bath. I don't know if anybody, has anybody ever had an ice bath before? It is miserable. It is the most miserable thing, I think, on, on the planet. You just get in a bucket of ice, and, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to get your muscles to recover and to settle. And, and I did that Monday through Friday. It changed my diet. It changed the way that I lived, changed the way that I slept, changed the way that I worked. 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. every single day, and I shaved off 0.7 seconds off of my time. Do you know how fast 0.7 seconds is? It's like, boom, that was it. My whole life, done. I was happy, right? Now, uh, that's training. I think that gives a good picture of training. Now, not so much, right? You know, track and field, that was a long time ago. I'm not really, you know, doing a whole lot of physical activity. I do play slow pitch softball with the guys on Monday nights, uh, but there's not a whole lot of running in that. And so I've kind of transitioned into what I would say is working out. So I joined a really awesome gym called Planet Fitness. Any Planet Fitness people in here? It is a, it is a low bar, judge-free zone. Come if you want. Don't come if you don't. No big deal. Here's what happened at Planet Fitness Thursday morning. So I walk in, uh, and, I, and I scan my, my phone because it's time to work out. And, and, and the girl behind the desk, she's so sweet. She always says good morning, even though it's like 530 in the morning. And she says, good morning. Would you like a donut? <laughs> and I know it was early in the morning, but, like, I just stared at her. I did, it's like my brain was trying to wrap my head around. And I just, 15 seconds, dead silent, stared at her. And I said, what did you say? <laughs> and she said, we have donuts for everybody this morning. And I just stared again, and I said, we're at a gym. <laughs> what do you mean donuts? And I realized I have got into the pinnacle of my training careers behind me, and working out is what I have in front of me. And so me and uh, Royal, we joked about it. And, and then on the way out again, she said, uh, do you want a donut? And I said, absolutely, I do. She said, you deserve one. I said, you bet I do. I deserve that donut. I just got up. I worked out. That's the difference in training and working out, right? So this summer, we have an opportunity that we've put before you that uh, the Sunday school teachers have decided we're going to do a, a uh, church-wide study called evangelism training. And my question is, is, are we doing evangelism training or are we just doing evangelism working out? Because there's two very different ways that you can come into this summer if, if this is just kind of a suggestion to work out. If, if evangelism is just something that is optional or just something that uh, we should do or we should learn some things about, I think that's going to be a complete, completely different way than, than if it is necessary and if there is a mission. And so you think about the, the story of what my training looked like to run track and field, and then you intensify that by thinking about what we honor tomorrow Memorial Day. We honor men who, and women who gave their lives maybe physically, maybe actually died, but certainly gave up training, gave up the foods that they didn't want to eat, they gave up sleep, they gave up options, they moved across the world. I think what that teaches us is that the greater the mission, the higher the sacrifice. The greater the mission, the, the greater need there is for training. So this morning, my question to you is, you know, why should you come to evangelism training? I think you should be asking me. And I think the answer to that question is answering one simple question. Is the harvest still plentiful? 
if the harvest isn't plentiful anymore, if that was just something that, that Jesus said 2,000 years ago, if the harvest isn't plentiful in Statesboro, Georgia, then, then don't come to evangelism training. <laughs> Sleep in. I'll, I'll give you the extra hour this summer. If, if the harvest isn't plentiful, then, then we don't need to, uh, to lean into the harvest. We don't need to lean into the lost. But if the harvest is plentiful, then we have a job to do. So as we look at God's word in, in Matthew 9, I've got two, kind of two goals for the sermon. First, we want to look through the eyes of Jesus to answer the question, is the harvest still plentiful? I think it's really easy to sit where we sit and to live in the Bible Belt and to live around good, moral, uh, quote-unquote, Christian neighbors and good, moral, quote-unquote, Christian uh, co-workers and answer the question, I just don't think the harvest is that plentiful. I think probably most people around me our believers. So that's the first thing. We want to look through the eyes. We need to borrow the eyes of Jesus to look at the harvest. And then the second thing, the second goal is, if it is still plentiful, what do we do about it? So read with me in Matthew 9, starting in verse 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would speak through this word. God, it is a familiar passage. It's a familiar challenge. God, don't let it fall on deaf ears. God, I pray that we would not become insensitive and calloused towards the call to go and make disciples of all nations. God, would you prick our hearts this morning? Would you compel us to a greater devotion to you and a greater devotion to our neighbor? And would we respond to your command to make disciples this morning? God, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So cultivate eyes for the harvest by modeling Jesus. Cultivate eyes for the harvest by modeling Jesus. Uh, First step that we see in the text. Look at the lost, get close enough to see their story. Look at the lost, get close enough to see their story. So I'm sure you've, you've kind of experienced this, like as you get closer to people, as, you, as people in general build relationships, I think the things that we really do, we really don't do a whole lot with people. What we really do is we get together and we just kind of tell stories, right? We get together over dinner and we tell stories about the past week. We get together over lunch and we, and we tell the stories of, of what's been going on in our life. And I think what that shows us is that every single person in the world has a detailed, intimate story just like you and me. Like, like I, I do this sometimes. Like, I'll, I'll be at Walmart, like, when the, when the college students get back, and it's just, like, madness, right? Like, it is out-of-control madness. Or you go to somewhere like Six Flags, Disney World, you see all these people, and I just try to stop every now and then and be like, every single one of these people has a story just like mine. Like, they have a background just like I do. They, they have drama. They have family problems. They have big events and small events that shape their story. And I think it's really good just to step back and realize that people are just made up of a compilation of stories. And the more unique their story is uh, from other people, the more you see their individuality. And the closer their story is to other people, you see commonality. You see friendships built. You see relationships formed. I think what the text teaches us this morning is that the closer you are to somebody's story, the more you enter in and hear the story, the more credibility you have to speak into their story. That's what I think Jesus shows us in the text is he builds credibility into the lives of the people that he reaches out to. Let's look at it in the text. So starting in verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. Now, this text is meant to be read like this. You you see kind of three verbs, and there's no commas to separate them, so we should be saying he's teaching, he's proclaiming, he's healing, and this is kind of a a, a threefold format for his ministry. One of those is not more important than the other. They are equally relevant, equally important, but first, it says that as he goes throughout all the cities and villages, he is teaching in their synagogues. Now, synagogues in that day 
It was the place of worship, but it was so much more than that, right? So when the, the people of Israel were, before they were brought into Babylonian captivity, all of their worship was done primarily in the temple, and that's where the priests are, and that's where you have the sacrifices, and that's where you have all these sorts of things. Well, when they went into uh, exile in Babylon, they started kind of... Uh, uh, decentralizing their ministry. And so you start seeing things like synagogues pop up all throughout local communities and all throughout local uh, places where just 10 or more people could go and gather together for worship. So when it talks about Jesus entering into their synagogues, it's talking about much more than he just like shows up at church. A synagogue was their, their place of worship, but it was their place of community. It was the courthouse as well as the, the, the church, right? It, it was everything to the, the people of Israel. It's where they celebrated their festivals. It's where they um, celebrated being Jewish. It was a huge staple in the community and a huge staple in the people of Israel. So essentially, what a synagogue is, it is where the story of Israel was being played out on a day-to-day basis. The synagogue is the, the place where the story of Israel is being played out in a day-to-day basis. So that's one side. The other side is, as the, the synagogue became uh, more uh, decentralized, their order of worship changed, right? So they didn't have kind of this very formal, rigorous, not every synagogue had a professional priest or anything like that. So it was a very communal experience. So somebody would get up and they would pray and they would uh, thank God for the time. Somebody else would get up and lead them in a song. Somebody else would get up who would be assigned and they would do a reading and, and expound the scripture. So what Jesus is doing when he enters into the synagogue's teaching is he is entering into the story that is going on in the community in very appropriate ways. Like there's nothing inappropriate. He's not commandeering the pulpit. It's not like somebody comes up and just you know, opens the Bible and starts preaching. That would be extremely awkward, right? He, he is entering into the life and the story of the community in very appropriate ways. And so my question is, for us, where are the synagogues of Statesboro? Like, where are the synagogues of Statesboro? Not where are the places of worship, but where is the story of Statesboro being lived out? Where is the story of Statesboro being fleshed out? Where is the story of Statesboro uh, being lived, where people are uh, talking and doing life together and writing the the things that we value, the things that we uh, deem important? Well, I'd say there's three primary places. One, the story of Statesboro is being lived out in the workplace. Wherever your workplace is, there's a, there's a constant story that is continually unfolding over the lives of your coworkers, over the, the people that work there, over the company itself. The, the story of Statesboro is being lived out in our homes and in our neighborhoods where people are together and where they're sharing dinner and meals together. And then the story of Statesboro is being lived out in any form of recreation or entertainment. This could be restaurants that people go to. This is Georgia Southern sporting events, art festivals, First Friday, whatever it is. This is the place. These are the places where the story of Statesboro is being lived out, where the story of Statesboro is being told over and over and over again. And so what Jesus does is he enters into the story. I think that gives us our first principle. How do we see the harvest through the eyes of Jesus? We have to enter into the stories of other people's lives. We have to go where people are living. We can't hide in our houses and and hide on our back porches with our privacy fences and hide within the walls of our church. We have to go to where the story is being lived out and build relationship intentionally. And so I go to work thinking, Whose story am I going to interact with today? Who, who is God putting before me in my workplace that I can share a, a conversation with, that I can enter into intentionally building relationship? Who's somebody in, in my neighborhood? When I go up to the neighborhood pool and there's somebody else there, why has God sent both of us to be there? At the same time? How can I listen in such a way that I can build relationship? Or if I'm working out in the yard and somebody walks by my house that I haven't met before, how can I introduce myself to them and build relationships and start to hear their story and, and start to build relationship and press in? That's what Jesus does first. He says he goes and he teaches in their synagogue, which means he enters into the story and he starts building relationships with people. It's the first step to to seeing the harvest as plentiful. Next, look with me in the text. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, but not just teaching, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease in every affliction. So that word proclaim, it literally means to herald as a messenger, right? So it suggests formality, 
gravity and authority. It says when Jesus went and entered into relationships with the community and, and started to hear their stories, he didn't just stop there to say, man, if I get close enough and be a good enough friend, then they're going to learn about Jesus. He got there, he built relationship, he built credibility, and then he proclaimed the gospel. Now, I think so many of us, we, we are so frightened by the idea of proclaiming the gospel, right? I, I think for most of us, we say, well, we, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to offend we don't want to cast people in the wrong light, so we're just going to build a relationship until they, you know, come to faith in Christ. Here's the interesting thing. Nobody ever owned their sin, repented of their sin, professed faith in Christ because you were a good neighbor. Nobody ever was convicted by the Spirit to give their lives to a better story because you were a good coworker. Now, that platform is important. Don't get me wrong. Building relationship is important. But there's a sense where Jesus, who lived a better life than either of us did, who set a far better example than either of us did, if he had to proclaim the gospel in order for people to come to faith in Christ, how much more do we have to proclaim the gospel? And, and so I think on one hand, we, we, we are guilty, and I've been guilty of this, that I'm just going to let my, my life proclaim the gospel for me. Or I'm just going to let my life preach Christ for me. And Jesus challenges that. Matthew challenges that. says, no, no, no. He came teaching, building relationship, and he came proclaiming, heralding a message with formality, gravity, and authority. How many of us, myself included, have shared the gospel just, and I'm just like mumbling, right? Like, I'm so scared I'm going to offend this person. I just going to go, hey, man, you know, this is kind of something that worked for me, and maybe it'll work for you. It's like, the gospel is not a suggestion worth being considered. It is an objective reality that every single human being on the planet Earth must respond to. And they are responsible for not responding to. So, so that means that the person who never hears and the person who never believes is equally responsible as you and I to responding to the gospel. There is a, a weight, there is a gravity behind this. And I don't think Jesus is, is this timid figure who just walks up and says, hey, you know, maybe you should try this Christianity thing out. He proclaims because it is true and it is real, and what we do with it has internal implications. So he teaches, he builds relationship, he proclaims with formality, with gravity, and with authority. See, see the gospel is not something to be shared as if maybe this is a solution for your problems. It, it is a truth that must be believed. It must be responded to. And so the way that we present the gospel, the way that we proclaim the gospel should match the formality, the gravity, and authority that the message itself holds within itself. Picking back up in the text. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So Healing all throughout the Old Testament and now carried over into the New was a sign of confirmation where God uh, was telling the people, the, the prophet that I'm sending is going to come with power to heal and do miracles. And when you see the guy show up to, that is healing and doing miracles, you need to listen to his message because he is a messenger sent from me. So we see this in John 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He says this, now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. So what is Nicodemus uh, proclaiming? He's saying, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Why? Because of the signs and the power and the authority that you have. Now look at Jesus' response. Jesus could have responded so many ways. He could have responded and said, you're right. I, I am a teacher come from God. But what does he do? He says, you already believe that, so I'm going to start teaching. Look what he says. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus uses healing and uses signs and miracles to confirm his status as a teacher sent from God, to confirm his status as a messenger sent from God. And the moment that a person admits you are a messenger from God, he goes straight to the gospel. He goes straight to the cross. He says, well, if you think that I'm a teacher, listen to the word that is coming from God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So my question for us is, how do we confirm today that we are messengers sent from God? 
What do we have at our disposal as the church to confirm the reality that we are messengers from God? I would say very practically and very tangibly it is this, that we run toward physical needs and not away from them. When people we know have real, tangible, physical needs, we run and we enter into them. And that gives us a sort of gospel credibility to our message. When we serve the least and the lost, when we serve our neighbors, when we serve people who are nothing like us, when we look for commonality and common ground in people, when we build relationships towards people and meet physical needs, we exude this gospel generosity to people, and it gives a platform for gospel proclamation. What Jesus has given us is he's given us a platform through building friendship, building relationship, and building trust with other people. So, so how are some ways that we can meet some physical needs, right? I, I think one way that would just be so cool is imagine that you had a lost friend in your neighborhood who was about to have a baby, and instead of, you know, sending them a text saying congratulations, you got them a meal train from Fletcher, and they went and, and gave them meals for six weeks, eight weeks, the way that any one of our members would experience. What an awesome opportunity to build a platform and say, you know what, we're going to be incredibly generous to you in a physical, practical, tangible way because we have a, the good news of a good gospel, of a good story that we're trying to bring to you. So what, what if somebody in your microgroup said, well, I've got somebody, one of my coworkers has an unexpected bill, and everybody in your microgroup said, you know what, we're going to pitch in and we're going to give them uh, some money to pay this bill without you know, any questions asked and, and never expecting a payment in return. It takes gospel generosity. It takes the, the, um, the love of Christ to go through us to the lost world in order to build any sort of credibility for the message that we also are to proclaim. So those are the three things Jesus says. He enters into the life and enters into the story of the people around him, proclaiming and healing, preaching Christ, preaching the good news of the gospel, and meeting tangible physical needs the way that you would to anybody that you love and care about. So here's the, the, the implication, I, I think, to, to run this point through our first original question. Is the harvest still plentiful? Well, if the harvest isn't plentiful, we don't have to get close enough to people to hear their story. We don't have to enter into relationships. We don't have to build friendship. We don't have to hear their story. We can hide in our houses and our churches and our friend groups. But if the harvest is plentiful, we have to pursue people with a different story than ours we have to pursue people that have a different story written over their life. We have to proclaim the good news of a better story that is written over our lives. If the harvest is plentiful, we have to roll up our sleeves, building friendship and meeting unexpected needs, meeting unmet needs. And when the lost person, the lost neighbor, the lost coworker says, why would you be so generous to give of your day or to give of your time, to give of your money? We say, because we serve a radically generous God who gave up of himself to meet my needs, to serve me. That's the first point. Point number two, look at their hope. Have compassion when you see the distressed and the disillusioned. Look at their hope. Have compassion when you see the distressed and disillusioned. So I, I've got a, a friend of mine. He, his, he's got two boys that are older, um, kind of like young teenage years. And, and I was over at his house, and I heard them just like making a racket. Like they were just being extremely loud uh, back in the back room. And I said, what, what are they doing? And he goes, well, they've gotten into this weird phase where they like to watch like gruesome sports injury videos on YouTube. I was like, it's kind of weird, right? <laughs> like gruesome. Has anybody like, like been watching a football game and just seen like a, a guy's just ACL just completely ripped out? Okay, if you haven't seen that, I'm going to show you a couple pictures up here so that you can kind of get the sense of what I'm talking about. So here's a game that I was watching a couple years ago. This is a guy named Dak Prescott. He gets tackled. You're like, oh, not that big of a deal. Go to the next picture. You see, you know, he kind of a grimace on his face. You're like, man, that's kind of routine tackle. And then the next picture, ankle is completely just like falling off his leg. Like, <laughs> you're like, how, how did that even happen, right? All right, what, what about the next one? So here's a guy named Tyrone Prothrow. I was watching this game in high school, <laughs> and he caught a touchdown pass. He actually caught that pass. Hang on, go back for a second. Go back to the last one. Never mind. Uh, yeah, there it is. Catches this touchdown pass against my beloved Florida Gators. I was so angry, and then it ruined his career because his leg snapped in half. All right, next one. Uh, so this is y'all's boy. This is uh, Nick Chubb, hyperextended knee. Um, I think he only missed like two or three games, which is pretty, pretty incredible. 
Uh, go, go to the next one. And this is Georgia Southern Zone. Guy running off. They get a quick snapshot. Finger supposed to be going this way, uh, going that way, right? It's a gruesome sports injury. Sorry. I just thought that would be, that'd be too fun for me to, to know what's coming and be able to watch your faces. <clears throat> I, I, I think there's something very real. The feeling that you felt, and I watched you, the squeamish feeling of, man, I just want to look away, but I kind of want to look at it too, right? It's like you see a car wreck and you're like, I want to look away, but I got to look and see. That, that feeling, that, that feeling of being squeamish, of, of feeling kind of that butterfly in your stomach, that's exactly the feeling that Jesus has when he looks out at, at, at the lost crowds. It, it says that he looked out at the crowds and had compassion for them. Now, now, there's kind of different layers and different levels of compassion, right? When it says that Jesus had compassion, what that literally means is kind of a churning of the bowels. It is a, a being worked up, a, a squeamish feeling, a butterfly in my stomach feeling, and I can do two things about it. One, I can quit looking, and that, the feeling's going to go away, or I can run to you and fix it. The two words described there are the word pity. It's the difference in the word pity. I see something. I feel sorry for that person. So I look at Dak Prescott. I'm sorry that he dislocated his ankle, but I didn't think twice about it. The second word would be compassion, which imagine that was my child who's on the field with the ankle. And I look down for the crowds, and it invokes pity, yes, but action all the more. I run down out of the stands. I hold his hand. I take him to the doctor. There's a huge difference in the way that we view people when we view people out of a lens of pity. I feel sorry for you. I pity you. In a feeling of compassion. I love you. I care about you. I want to help you walk through this. Let's look at it in the text together. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Now, one thing that I would like to point out is he saw the crowds before he had compassion. I think that's extremely important, that he saw them first, and then that seeing invoked compassion. Now, there's three different ways that you could interpret that word saw. So he could have literally seen somebody. So he's standing there with his disciples. He literally sees somebody uh, coming up the hill or coming up the, to, to where he is, and he has compassion towards them. It could also mean, uh, saw, see, could also mean to become acquainted with by experience, to get to know somebody. So as he's building relationship with somebody, as he gets closer to somebody, as he hears their story, it evokes compassion. And I think that's so true for all of us. Just to, to be a human means that we have varying levels of compassion for different people. So should I feel compassion for, for the lost person that I don't know, I don't know their name, I'm never going to know, but I just see them passing the street? Absolutely. I should absolutely have a, a level of compassion for them. But will I have a deeper compassion if that person's a, a relative of mine, a friend of mine? If that person who doesn't profess Christ is, uh, is my child or my best friend, absolutely, I'm going to have a deeper level of compassion for them. I think the principle that that teaches us is that proximity always leads to intimacy. Proximity always leads to intimacy. So the closer that I get, the more I hear their story, the more that I know who they are, the more compassion I'm going to have, the, the, the more desire I'm going to have to enter in and not run away. Well, the question is, well, why did Jesus have compassion? Pick up in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. These words, harassed and helpless, it means being distressed and dispirited. It means being, they were troubled and they were downcast. They were constantly under attack by, by their authorities, and they had become disillusioned to the fact that they could ever experience freedom. I, I would say this word most closely is met by our word for hopeless. They, they had been so constantly under attack that they had become hopeless, and so Jesus has compassion on them. Well, why are they hopeless? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So if you think about the, the, the people of Israel, right, all the way back to the day of Abraham, they had been given this promise that a Messiah is going to come in their midst. There's going to be a Messiah who comes, who's going to set them free, who's going to lead them into the promised land, and they're going to have flourishing and success and peace. And time and time again, when the politician gets to the, the, the position, Rome gets in their pocket 
And the very person who is meant to lead them, the very person who is meant to care for them, to protect them, their shepherd, the king of Israel, is getting paid off by the people of Rome. That's the, the kings uh, 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 called Herod. That, that's what they were doing. They, they ascended to power with really catchy slogans of make Jerusalem great again. And then the second that they got their power, they turned on their people. They, they let the, the authorities of Rome uh, help them to, to squash the freedoms of their people, to exploit their people so that they could stay in power and so that they could give Rome the ultimate authority. These are people who are sheep without a shepherd. They have spent 1,700 years waiting for the Messiah, and every time somebody steps into a position of leadership that they believe is the Messiah, that person turns on them. He exploits them. He takes advantage of them, and he gets rich off of them. My my question is for us, as the people of Israel that Jesus saw were hopeless, my question for us is where are the people of Statesboro putting their hope today? Where are the people of Statesboro putting their hope today? The the people of Israel were putting their hope in their political rulers, and they were let down time and time and time again. Where are the people of Statesboro putting their hope today? I think there's a couple things here, and this could be, there's many more. I I think the people of Statesboro are putting their hope into politics and politicians the same way that the people of Israel were. And so they look and they say, man, if we could just get past COVID, then we would have some freedom and we would have a sense of normalcy and we would be able to, to go back to living our lives. And, and then this thing called inflation happens and we go, well, man, if we could just get this guy out of office and get the new guy in office, he, he can fix, fix inflation and get us cheaper gas and, and a better way of living. If, if my person would just take authority and, and get into a, a position of power, then my needs and my hopes and my dreams are all going to be met. And then politician after politician after politician wins elections on empty promises, and, and we're left in a position where we're hopeless, harassed and helpless, troubled and downcast. But that, that might not be the, the only place that, that people of Stageboro put their hope where do the people of Stagesboro put their hope today? I think we put our hope, and the people of Stagesboro put their hope in the economy. Or, or they put their hope in finances and retirement funds. And, and they say, man, if I can just save enough money, or if I could just prepare for retirement, if I could just reach the next step of my financial goal, then I will be satisfied. Then I will be secure. And we just watch people that have placed all of their hope in a stock market that continues to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And it should evoke compassion in us. Because we look and we see the thing that you're looking to for hope was never designed to give you an ultimate hope. The thing that you're building your life on to satisfy, to give you security, to give you purpose, to give you life is always going to let you down time and time again. Where are the people of Stagesboro putting their hope today? I think a lot of people put their hope in recreation. I think a lot of people put their hope in the Instagram life, right? And we scroll on our phones and we look at all of our friends who are on vacation while I'm sitting at home with nothing to do. And we think, if I could just get on vacation, if I could just get to the beach, if I could just get the jet ski, if I could just get the extra long weekend, and then, then I can post my photos. When I post my photos, everybody's going to like my photo. I'm going to be popular. I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to have uh, everything that I ever wanted. And people chase recreation. We have taken the margins of our calendars and we have maxed them out as much as we can. And then we drag into work on Monday and we say, man, why am I so tired? It's because I didn't rest this week and I worked all week and then I maxed out the margins of my calendar so that I continually go searching for more, wanting more, longing for more. And we have a purpose, we have a hope that cannot uphold our desires, they cannot uphold our life. Jesus had compassion for the people because he saw a misplaced hope. And if we are ever going to see through the lens of Jesus that the harvest is still plentiful, we have to get close enough to people to see what they are putting their hope in and then to see how that hope is letting them down. And, not, and, and don't stop there. But we're there to offer a better hope, a better hope in Christ. Uh, Pick up with me in verse 37. So the, the first thing that motivates Jesus, that, that, that causes him to have compassion, is he sees the people. Right? He's with the people. He's built a relationship with people. The second thing is once he sees them, he sees that they have a hope that is actually making them hopeless. And then here's the third thing. Then he said to his disciples, 
the harvest is plentiful. Now, there's, there's a couple different interpretations of what it, does it mean that the harvest is plentiful. One interpretation of that is that the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of lost people out there who are ready to receive Jesus, who are ready to hear the gospel preached to them, hear the gospel proclaimed to them, and they're going to receive Jesus and put their hope in him. That's one interpretation. But there's another picture all throughout Scripture of what this harvest could mean. It could be a harvest of judgment. All throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, and even Jesus references it in the New, there is a picture of harvesting judgment, people reaping up for themselves judgment. Isaiah 17, 10 through 11 says this, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Joel 3 says this, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. When Jesus looked out at, at the harvest, when he saw people calling, coming towards him, he, he had compassion because they were like sheep without a, shep, without a shepherd, but he also had compassion because he weighed the eternal implications of the life that they were living. There's a third way that that word saw could be interpreted, and it means that he saw with his mind. He saw people coming to him who had a misplaced hope, and he played out the implication of their lives in his head, and he had compassion because the life that they were living did not give them hope today, and it certainly didn't give them hope in the life to come. So where are the people of Statesboro putting their hope? Where are the people of Statesboro putting their hope? See, I put those pictures on the screen because I wanted us to get that, that squeamish feeling. I think we've gotten far too comfortable in our churches to look away from people who are living hopeless lives. When we feel the compassion and we feel the burden to look at the eternal implications of a lost person, we've gotten far too comfortable at just looking away, saying I'm going to suppress that thought, I'm going to act like that isn't going to happen, and I'm just going to pretend that everything's going to be okay. Jesus looked into the harvest. He looked at the state of the people around him, and he, it brought compassion that caused him to enter in. So if the harvest isn't plentiful, then we don't have to build relationships. We don't have to get close enough to hear people's stories. If the harvest isn't plentiful, we don't have to investigate their hope. If their harvest isn't plentiful, we don't have to get close enough to lost people to have a burden of compassion for them. We can just stay at a distance. We can just pretend that they're already Christians. We can just believe that they will spend eternity with Jesus. But if the harvest is plentiful, if people are still harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, if there are people still in Statesboro who do not know the love of Jesus Christ and are going to spend eternity apart from him in a very real place called hell, I cannot pity them. I must move with compassion towards them. So that brings us to our last point. Look at the task. Pray and go because you see Jesus as Lord of the harvest. Look at the task. Pray and go because you see Jesus as Lord of the harvest. So I pulled a report from um, something called the Association of Religious Data Archives. And this is a 2010 report. And so what we're going to do is I want us to kind of look through and see the uh, percentages of religious people in Bullock County in 2010. That's the the most up-to-date numbers. And then we're going to kind of compare that to uh, today's population, right? So the, the first thing that the Association of Religious Data Archives says is that 36.3% of the population claims some sort of religious affiliation. Now, this isn't just Christian. This is, this is Buddhist. This is Jehovah's Witness. This is Hindu. Out of all of Bullock County, 36.3% claims some sort of r- religious affiliation. Uh, but under that, 12.6% attended at least one church service in the previous year. That includes weddings, funerals, uh, holiday services. Um, Out of everybody in Bullock County, last year 12.6% of Bullock County attended one religious gathering. 
which leads uh, the, the Georgia Baptist Convention to believe, to estimate that 85% of the people in Bullock County are likely lost. Now, I don't know if that's been your experience. I would say most of our experience have been that everybody here is a Christian. Everybody's a good, moral person, and we live in the Bible Belt, and everybody has a church home, and everybody's saved, and everybody, now they don't act like it, and they don't actually go to their church, and they don't actually profess Christ in, in the way that they live, but, but I'm going to take them at their word that, that they are a Christian. I think that would be kind of our experience, but I, I want to go a little bit further. So we're going to take those, we're just going to assume that, that those percentages stayed the same over the last 10 years and compare that with the population in 2021. So the population in July of 2021 uh, in Bullock County was 82,442 people, meaning that if 85% of them were lost, if 85% of our population was lost, there's likely 70,000 75 like, uh, people in Bullock County that are likely non-Christians. 70,000 people in our county that don't know the name of Jesus. And you may say that, that sounds like a really high number, but I would say that's kind of a generous number because if only 12% of the people actually attended some sort of religious, not just Christianity, but some sort of religious event last year, I, I think saying that 15% of them are, are believers is kind of a generous number. And so we are surrounded by lost people, but it goes a step further. This next picture is a picture of all the churches kind of in Bullock County, all the Southern Baptist churches in Bullock County. There are 76 total churches that claim the name of Christ. So every denomination that at least claims the name of Christ, 28 of those are are SBC churches, which means that if there are 70,000 lost people in Bullock County, then every single church that claims the name of Christ has to reach 802 lost people in order for the county to be reached. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. But watch what happens if we go one step further. If we go one step further to, to say that it is not just the church, the institution who goes on mission to the lost, but it is the church, the people of God who go on mission to the lost. If every single person who claimed the name of Christ went on mission for the lost, then each of us would have to share the gospel with six people in our county. If every single person who was a Christian lived on mission, got training to share their faith, uh, built relationships towards people, found where they put their hope in, built credibility in the way that they lived, then each of us would have to share the gospel with six people. Now it starts to seem doable, right? Now it's realistic. And I think what that shows us is that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few because we think that the, that evangelism is the work of the church, big C, and not the work of the church, everybody who professes Christ. The harvest is plentiful and the labors are few. When we see numbers like that, I think it is overwhelming. But when we realize that, that every member on mission um, could reach those people, could reach six people, and, and we could reach our entire county, it makes the tasks feasible, and it makes evangelism training essential. The reason we don't share the gospel with lost people is because we haven't been trained. We don't know how. And so as I invite you into our summer study on evangelism training, I, I want you to come in and train, not, not come in and work out. Come in and train like there's a task at hand, there's a mission before us, and there's application that, that needs to be met. Don't just come in and work out. Why should we do this? What hope do we have when we look at this verse as to why we should enter into the harvest? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Look at Jesus' solution. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray earnestly because the Lord of the harvest, the, the one who is the king of the harvest, the one who is the final authority over the harvest is the very one that we're praying to. He calls us to, to pray to him in such a way that he would send out laborers in the harvest. One quick point, and then we'll kind of wrap it up. I think the, the way Jesus says this is absolutely genius, right? If Jesus just says, pray for lost people, I think I can pray for lost people and just kind of leave it at that, right? I can pray for lost people, and if they don't come to Christ, then I go, well, I guess God didn't want them to come to Christ, and I just kind of move about my, my day. If I pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send out laborers. God, would you send out laborers to this person? Would you send out laborers to this community? Would you send out laborers to this neighborhood? Then there's no way that I can pray that prayer without being compelled to go be the answer to the prayer. 
There's no way that I can pray that prayer without being compelled to go to the lost, to the harassed and helpless and be an answer to the prayer. But here's, here's the issue. When you hear that there's 70,000 people in Bullock County that are likely lost, I think that becomes a really hard task because most of them believe that they're saved. Most people in Bullock County believe that they're Christian. And so I think the hardest person in the world to reach, harder than Muslims, harder than Hindus, harder than atheists, is a false Christian. It is absolutely the hardest person in the world to reach for Christ because they believe that they already have salvation. So how do we evangelize false Christians? How do we evangelize counterfeit Christians? Well, when you have a counterfeit bill, you put it up next to the real thing. And so as Jesus entered into relationship, as he built relationship to hear their story, we have to go further, not just to hear their story, but to get close enough so that they can see a better story that's been written over our lives. When Jesus entered in and got close enough to see their hope, we have to go a step further and get close enough to see their hope, but get close enough for them to see the hope, the better hope that we have in Jesus Christ that governs our lives, that gives us satisfaction in him. And when Jesus called his people to the mission, we have to call people who profess Christ into the mission as well. And and as you lay a true Christian side by side with a counterfeit Christian, only then will God be able to use your life and use that work um, to to help them see that indeed they are lost, that indeed they are sheep without shepherd. All right, a couple quick uh, implications, and then we'll be done. <clears throat> Number one, um, serve and share with two. Pastor Chris has been preaching this ever since I started coming to this church, and, and every time I hear it, I'm like, God, it really is that simple. <laughs> like, if I would just serve and share with two, it, it really is that simple. It's, it's hard to look out at Bullock County and think 70,000 lost people depend on my witness to go reach them for Christ. But if I could just serve and share with two, start where I am, um, then that's, that's doable. That's realistic. Second, Second question, do you have compassion for lost people or pity, and why? Do you have compassion for lost people or pity? When, when you see the lostness of, of your coworker, when you see the lostness of the person in your neighborhood, when you see the lostness of your child or your family member, do you have pity that says, well, I'm just not going to think about that? Or do you have compassion that says, I have to enter, that, enter into that with a better hope, with a better story? Third, Who is God consistently putting in your path that may not be a genuine believer? Who is God consistently putting in your path that may not be a genuine believer? Is this a coworker, a neighbor, somebody I run into at at the Dollar General that I go to? Is this somebody that I run into in the hobby that I participate in? Who is God consistently putting in your path that may not be a genuine believer? And then fourth and finally, how will you approach evangelism training this summer? If the harvest isn't plentiful, then, then we can just call it evangelism class. We can study about evangelism. We can look at all the nuances of evangelism. We can look at how Jesus did evangelism, and we don't have to do anything with it. But if the harvest is still plentiful, then we have to go on mission, and we need training so that we can apply it. How will you approach evangelism training this summer? Are you going to avoid it, just not even going to go? Are you going to study it academically? Yeah, let's just go get a good knowledge, base knowledge, theoretical knowledge of evangelism. Or are you going to apply it? We believe that the harvest is still plentiful, and the laborers are few. If the harvest isn't plentiful, don't pray for laborers. If the harvest isn't plentiful, don't engage the lost. If the harvest isn't plentiful, certainly don't come to evangelism training this summer. It's a waste of our time. Sleep in, get the extra hour, come to worship. But if the harvest is still plentiful, then we must go to the lost until we see their story. We must have compassion on the lost because we see that they're hopeless. Before we can do any of that, we have to get trained in order to offer them a better hope, in order to offer them a better life, a better salvation. We have to get training so that we can offer them the, the truths of the gospel and help them to flesh them out and believe them so that they could have eternal life along with us. So, so what is your answer to the question this morning? In your life, in your circumstance, how do you view it? Is the harvest still plentiful? Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we are not the lords of the harvest, but you are. We thank you this morning that the salvation of lost souls is not dependent on us, but it rests firmly in your unmovable hands. God, so many times I've failed 
to proclaim Christ to people who need a better hope. God, so many times I have failed to see the lost as harassed and helpless. So many times I've, I've looked away from the pain and from the implications of a lost person sending, spending eternity in hell apart from you. And I look away so that I can sleep at night, so that I can remain comfortable, so that I don't have to do anything about it. God, I pray that you would compel us by your spirit and by your word that the harvest is still plentiful and the laborers are still few. God, would you challenge us this morning to, to begin to pray and begin to participate in the mission that you've called us to. God, I pray that each person here that has heard your word uh, go forth, that is now accountable to your word, God, would spend some time evaluating, how, how am I going to use my summer? Is, is Sunday school optional this summer? Or is, is Sunday school essential so that I could get the, the tools and the equipping and the training that I need to go into the harvest? God, I pray that you would help us to wrestle um, with you and wrestle with your word in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come to a, a, a time of invitation, I, I just want to invite you that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And by God's grace, we have stumbled into a better hope. By God's grace, we've experienced a salvation. By God's grace, we have experienced the love of Christ in a way that he has completely rewritten our stories. If you've never experienced that, if you've never had a better story written over your life or a better hope placed into your heart, how will you respond to, to the good news of the gospel this morning? You can come here. I'd love to pray with you. You can fill out a, a sheet in your bulletin, and, and somebody will call you, come and pray with you. We can work that out. We'd love to do that. But for most of us in here, as we're presented with the need in our city, not, not the other side of the world, not the other side of the state, not just up in Atlanta, but Bullock County, the harvest is still plentiful. How are you going to respond? The, the laborers are still few. How will you go get training and equipping? But we pray to, to the Lord of the harvest. We pray for a better hope. We pray for a better salvation. And we enter into people's stories so that we could offer that better hope to them. So as we stand and worship, I just want to invite you, however you need to respond, if you need to come and pray together, I'd be happy to do that. If you need to spend some time with the Lord evaluating, how do I view the harvest? Am I just looking away to stay comfortable? Or am I being compelled to, to, to look to, to lost souls? Is God welling up compassion within me to do something about it? Let's stand and let's sing, and you respond how God is leading you.